When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Rat Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, August 31st, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we definitely, Rebecca, needed to record this episode for Monday. We absolutely (laughs) knew that we had advertising responsibilities to record this for Monday. Actually, we didn't. Rebecca, just before we got on the call, (laughs) said, Jeff... Uh, I think we forgot that Monday is Labor Day, and we we typically black out holidays, so we don't have to make stuff. We don't have to do the show. And I said, Rebecca, how dare you? Think of the listeners. <laughs> think of the listeners. You're Trying so magnanimous. That's why we're here. That's right. That's why we're here. <laughs> uh, we had an agenda. We've been gone too long, and uh, you're going to be out next week. So I we, you know, we got to check in here real quick, make sure everybody's okay. Do. The book world's all right. How are things going? Do you think the books are fine? Do they I, seem I think- fine? I think books are okay. okay. You know, the vibes yeah. are fine. The vibes yeah. are fine enough is okay. where I'm at. Fine enough, yeah. But we we do need to reassure the people that, you know, the Shinsky O'Neill show will go on. Cause right. Four weeks of us not on this show together. I don't it's, think that's acceptable. I don't, I don't think, you know, we'd probably get a letter from the government, you know, just making sure everything's fine, <laughs> get a little check-in, and have an inspector come by. I was in um, uh, the U.K., for the last couple of weeks, uh, you're going somewhere next week. Do you, do you want to say where you're going? I don't think I know sure. where you're going. Yeah, I'm going to Italy. We are okay. celebrating Bob's 40th birthday a bit belatedly. Um, we're going to the Amalfi Coast for okay. a week. Uh, so we've had multiple European sojourns between the two mm-hmm. of us over the last few the, the last few months. Uh, I'm gonna. I've, while I was in the UK, I did some bookstore snooping. I'm not much of a bookstore tourist when I go, but I did it for the show, Rebecca, because I needed to see what these bookstores look like that have been in. It's like it's like the Beatle invasion, the the British invasion for bookstore formats um, over the last year. I'm appreciating that context because I was surprised when your texts to me from vacation were from bookstores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I was again. I typically wouldn't. In fact, I had to go out of my way. I went out of my way, but only to take some pictures, and I I was just curious to see what they were like there. Um, But we're going to get to that later in the show. Let's do our first sponsor break and do some follow-up. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. This is not the first time you've heard Rebecca and I talking if you subscribe to our Patreon because right now we record before I went out of of town and it went up on Tuesday. The fall draft extravaganza is up. So if you are already a member of the Patreon, make sure you go check that out. If you are not and that's interesting you to go do it, we did the thing we normally do. We each tried to create the best basket of books for the general reader that no one votes according to that, but that's what we do anyway. That is the pantomime <laughs> that we play. Uh, and you can you can go vote over there. Coming on first edition early next week, the September It Books knockout round. So there's a little bit of crossover between those two things, which was one of the more difficult things I've done in my life. You know, I did, I did, did some graduate tough. school. I've had children. I Not myself. Uh, I, was, I was present. I've raised children, started a company. But picking between Ross Gay and some others at the end... <laughs> I really had to take a cold look into the abyss on that one. It was tough. I was looking back at the draft this morning, and I think our two baskets might be the best set of 20 books we've picked for a season in the several years that we've been doing. Yeah, it's really good. And 
It's a, it's such a good crop of books. And you're right, doing the It books for first edition, I knew it was going to be tough, but it was really tough. Yeah. So go check those things out. There'll be links in the show notes there. I think by the time this show comes out, I, I don't go subscribe to first edition anyway. Had a couple of wonderful guests while I was gone. I need to go promote that on the first edition channels, but had Josh Cook. Oh, you heard people listen. That, that was the dropped people into this. People heard Josh Cook. People heard yes. that. The one that didn't get dropped in that released while I was gone um, was a two-parter. The first section, Sharifa and Jen, uh, Book Riot um, conspirators with us, came in to talk about how to make an anthology. Um, they have a new anthology out called Fit for the Gods, Greek Mythology Reimagined. Talked a little bit. We didn't actually talk about th- that book too much, except that we did, because it was how to make an anthology. Jen's done two of these. This is Sharifa's first time. How you get you know, how the business of it works, how the agenting and editing and the payments and all the things. We really got into it there a little bit. It was really great. Um, and then uh, Professor Farah Kareem Cooper, who is the director of education at Shakespeare's Globe Theater and a professor of Shakespeare at University of London, came on to talk about her new book called The Great White Bard, talking about race and Shakespeare, um, which was really, really interesting and uh, uh, a helpful context to think about how to keep why and how to keep Shakespeare feeling not like a moldering old white guy because it's not that simple and the mm-hmm. pleasures and challenges of thinking um, and reading Shakespeare in the context of race. I've got another. So the, the It Book Knockout coming out next week on first edition will also have, in the second half of that, I talked to Professor Jenny Nuttall, who is a professor of old medieval languages at Oxford. Her new book called um, Mother Tongue, the history of women's words I found really interesting. She went back and each chapter is on some part of women's life. And she uses that context expansively in a modern way. You know, what, what, what's the history of words about menstruation and sex and work and pain. It was really good. And she, when you talk to an old English professor at Oxford, you you do realize that the greater nerd, the greater nerd theory is true. There's always a greater (laughs) nerd. And, I like to think of myself as a logophile, a bibliophile, an educated man, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> yes. One of the great nerds. Yeah, I, I would say I'm in the second or third rank, maybe at best, <laughs> after talking to Professor Jenny and other people I've talked to, you know, Sarah Bakewell and uh, Sarah Hart. I mean, these lots of Sarahs. Um, I, Sarahs may need to join our power ranking of first names. Of Anne's. Anne's and <laughs> Jonathan's and, and Allison's. Yeah. Um, but please... You, Go check out first edition if any of that stuff seems interesting to you. The link in the show notes there. Also, go check out the deep dive. You did a bunch of newsletter stuff while I was gone. Talk to me about some of the newsletter stuff you were doing. I just wrote my face off in August, which was really <laughs> yeah, fun. You'd have to talk to me for two weeks. Like, why could it make words? You know, it is strange, though, after having done this show for 10 years, like, I don't fully process the news if we're not talking about it with each other. Oh, <laughs> so I did. Yeah. You, you were missed. Uh, but I did take some of the time while I wasn't on conference calls, since that's one thing that does happen when you're gone as my calendar frees up, uh, to revisit... The Bridges of Madison County, Incredible stuff. which was, it was, man, it was such a trip. The, um, it's the first Oprah sensation that, and that I remember, like I was 11. I remember coming home from school. My mom mm. would watch Oprah every afternoon. And I remember like seeing the Oprah craze about the Bridges of Madison County. If you had asked me before this month, what was like the book that kicked off Oprah's book club, I would have told you it was the Bridges of Madison County. But mm. that was in 1993. She didn't start the book club until 1996. I suspect that how big that book went after she talked about it might have been like the 
the impetus to start thinking about a book club. Um, But I read, I like sneak read it when I was 11 years old. It's about people having an extramarital affair. Most of it went over my head. And I discovered (laughs) in rereading it that some of the scenes that I thought I remembered from the book are definitely scenes I was remembering from the movie. Yeah. Uh, So... I had to like really straighten myself out, but I had a very entertaining afternoon. It's a 188 page paperback. The font is huge. I read it in like three hours and I sent a lot of unhinged video messages to friends (laughs) while I was like, you've got to hear these sentences. Mm. (laughs) It's not bad, but it's not good. And it gave me a real opportunity to think about like, what makes a book become a viral sensation? It has a lot of things in common, actually, with Fifty Shades of Grey Mm -hmm. and with the Colleen Hoover books. It's a big, sweeping, unrealistic, romantic story. Um, It's the only one of those that has been that big that's been written by a man, which makes it interesting. It gives us some like glimpses of at least what one man thought women wanted in 1993. Well, hold, Nicholas Sparks is very mad somewhere, right? I know he wasn't oh, picked by true. Oprah, but it does feel like the Nicholas Sparks phenomenon is a direct descendant of whatever the, the whatever the you genetic know, material yeah, sloshing like around a, the ocean was uh, for Bridget. I think, County. yeah, that's interesting. Like a soft romance kind of situation. Yeah. There's not any sex in Nicholas Sparks, though, I don't think. It's like a right. fade to black situation. And yeah. certainly... Like going back into the media coverage of the Bridges of Madison County, the sex was one of the draws to mm. this book, which is a real head scratcher because it is some of the more bizarre sex writing I've ever read. It's like somehow both not descriptive, but also very, very ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, um i don't know it was it was just a whole thing um i read like a 10 page section of it out loud to bob at one point and he was just like this is are you okay which is like a third of the book right that's like 10 pages right. like you're almost done just finish your right off. the and the boning doesn't start until 100 pages in so well, like you gotta you gotta get through some other stuff before that can happen um it was a really good time. I had fun going back and reading a lot of coverage of it and people thinking about it. And it was interesting to try to like contextualize this viral sensation mm. alongside the ones that are contemporary for us. Because, Jeff, the Bridges of Madison County sold 60, 60 million copies. I mean, for a single title, mm-hmm. that is remarkable. When are we going to stop being surprised that a book that's a romance written for the average book reader, which is a woman, yeah. frankly, and that's romance is a big hit. When are we going to stop being surprised by this? Like the next I, time, just remind me of like, this, remind the whole book world, the next time this fourth wing or whatever, it's dragons <laughs> having sex and then also people having sex. That, mm-hmm. They were like, oh God, I can't believe it. It's like, wait a minute, let's go all the way back to like the Canterbury Tales when having right. something that is a little more, you know, loose than the average book being released is available. It, we gotta st- we gotta be smarter than this, Rebecca. We gotta remember history it's, a little bit, and it's just astonishing. Like sixty million is three times the total sales Colleen Hoover has done with twenty four books. We used to and be and it's a almost we used to yeah. be a country. You know, and it's almost Jonathan listening Civigal would sell 100 million copies and the Prince of Tides would sell 50 million copies and everyone would be complaining about it and then the publishing industry would go on. Yeah, and it's almost half of the total sales of Fifty Shades of Grey which had three books and like, you know, both of those authors had the internet to help them. Every Methodist mouth. woman in America read that book. 
Oh, yeah. Like my mom read it. My friend's mom's had it on the coffee table. I think I said in the deep dive piece, I have a memory of seeing it on my teacher's desk at school, but I don't know if that's real or wow. not. It's like totally believable, though. <laughs> it's very possible. It, it felt like it, it was, was part of the everywhere. furniture. It was everywhere. Yeah. It was everywhere. And so it was a real trip to like go back as an adult and read both the book and the coverage around mm. it. And and really, it's astonishing that there's not more like contemporary lookbacks at the Bridges of Madison County. That was such a big Because at least it's not, there, I mean, there's no movie stars, right? It's just Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep. So, right. you know, they don't have much of just, a career to look back on. Right. Just Meryl Streep. Come on. Like, yeah. it's it was really wild. And that, of course, got me thinking about Oprah. And so then mm. my later piece for the deep dive was about my general relationship to Oprah's book club. And in the course of writing it yesterday, I kind of came to the conclusion that maybe I owe a significant chunk of my career in books to the fact that Oprah like shaped my reading values mm. uh, so it's been fun folks can subscribe at bookriot.substack.com you're on duty coming up here for the deep dive yep uh i wrote today i was a little unhinged myself i'm i'm jet lagged but not i'm i'm sleeping like 9 30 to 4 right now which is Oof. kind of about as much as i normally sleep but it feels a little bit like i don't know i'm slightly out of phase with my real life and it yeah. came through in my writing today uh, for day in a book. Speaking, you know, I mentioned a book. Well, we'll get into news here in a little bit. I didn't put this in um, the show notes because I literally just saw it when I was looking at the bookmarks. So the ripped bodice in LA. Now the, I have to distinguish now because there's two ripped bodices. Oh right, Brooklyn yeah. Now, right. Is having a midnight release party for a book coming out this fall? Have you seen this story? Did you read? No. It? Just you did probably didn't see this. I have not. Well, let's play the game where I know something and you don't. <laughs> My favorite. Do you have any idea what it is? And I can go through a series of hints, and I'll see how long it takes you to get there. Okay, so, well, I mean, it's going to be a romance title. It's coming go. out this fall, so yeah. it's not out yet. Is it? What month is it? Can uh, I, ask I believe questions? November. I believe it's November. Oh. I have no idea. Is okay. it Regency? No. Uh, your first no. clue is the first book in the series came out this year already. Oh. I have no idea. Uh, let's see. It is a romanticy. <laughs> it's a romanticy. That's your next clue. Is it some kind of Sarah J. Moss situation? No, I mean, it's not Sarah J. Moss, but you know, if we were playing Marco Polo, the 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 polos are getting louder, <laughs> getting a little closer. Yeah, I do not think I'm going to be able to even ask questions into my way okay. to this answer. Yeah, the, your your last clue is that dragons definitely have sex in this book. Is it a Rebecca Yeros? It is. It's the next one in the Rebecca. Oh, okay, it's called The okay. Iron Flame. It's coming I out I forget November. that those are both this year. Okay. That's part of their... I think that's part of their... I'm trying to get someone from... Uh, I'm in conversation with people at Red Tower, which is the publisher, to talk about this phenomenon. It's good momentum. To figure something out. So here's another question. I don't know the answer to this, and this we might need some listener feedback. What is the last book that you would bet a substantial amount of money on had a midnight release at a bookstore? Oh. I really struggled. I struggled and I struggled. I don't know. I don't know if it has to be a series, right? I think. I, yeah. I just don't know what it would be. Yeah, I think one of those Hunger Games books. And this is not all, all Barnes and Noble. This is very specific. But this is a thing that used to happen. Harry Potter's, the Suzanne Collins's. I think probably one of the Veronica Roths did. Mm-hmm. One's the last book that I remember having a midnight release. I can't think of one. I think somebody did them for, was it Grey? Was that the title of the Fifty Shades of Grey? Oh, that would make sense. I feel like I saw that. They trotted that out and no one showed up. Uh, Maybe people showed up, I don't know. Because by the time E.L. James had the Penguin Random House 
deal for the original trilogy all the books had already been out self-published so there was no like fanfare about publication date right 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 i think it would have been that or maybe stephanie meyer had something in the last couple of years but since then like the chemist that that was that big stephanie meyer book anyway you can hear us searching that's Mm -hmm. that's the that's the that's the answer to that question is it's been it's been a hot minute i don't know i mean this is very specific and one thing i was talking to someone about recently is these book talk phenomenons. Oh, I guess you and I were talking about. It. I don't know where. I guess maybe mm-hmm. it was on the knockout round. That's all meshing together now. They seem to like burn through their communities quickly, but kind of end there. And I wonder if this is yes. the kind of thing we might see, where a romance bookstore, a science fiction fantasy bookstore, a mystery thriller bookstore, maybe they will have a midnight release party for something. But where every bookstore, from say Alexandria, Virginia, to Orange County, to Tacoma, Washington, right. has a party. <laughs> That's going to be something. I mean, that's going to take some doing. We're, we're, it's yeah, not on the, the horizon. The mainstream hit that like yeah. all the barns, like when I was a bookseller, we had midnight release parties for the latest Harry Potter and the new Twilight books. That's and right. I think even a new Hunger Games. Like that was Mockingjay right definitely had midnight release yeah. parties. I remember that distinctly. And, and every Barnes and Noble store was doing yeah. those. And like all the bookstores and all the chains were doing those. Borders still existed at the time. Um that's how old I am. So when you lined up for um, my struggle four, was that midnight or was that like a ten a.m.? <laughs> you got to do that one in the stone cold light of day, yeah, my friend. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a walk of shame to the bookstore for that. <laughs> but yeah, I think I wonder too with the um, like just the prevalence of e-reading now, but mm. also how prevalent uh, genre reading, especially romances in ebooks. Like if you are, I understand the appeal of like, if you're a big fan of a particular author wanting to go and like gather with community and the romance reading community does this better than I think any other genre community does of like getting together and creating hype around a thing and joining together to like all go do the same activity or celebrate the same book. But like, do they want to go to a midnight release party when the thing could hit your e-reader at midnight? Very tough. And you could be cozy in your bed and like start reading it the next morning. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to see those for, I guess, the Rebecca Yaros lives in that like upper YA crossover to adult zone where maybe folks are young enough to want to be up at midnight to buy a book. Well, like, it's a good point. That It's really for, I, st- I think you start topping out in a real way. Again, there's going to be outliers and, and awesome people that don't fit into these molds. But once you hit that three as the first digit in your, your age, mm-hmm. I think it's... You, it's just less interesting. Yeah, I don't know who would have reasons. to have a book coming out for me to like trot myself down. I mean, to we're getting and Groff and Smith and Ward, and we're not. <laughs> right. None of us are like, let's get up at midnight. And I mean, who else <laughs> right. are we going to get? <laughs> right, it's true. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so th- I thought that was interesting. That is interesting um, to see. I'll be see. I'll be curious to see what the follow on sales for that. Well, uh, if that doesn't have spreads. They're they're oh, too smart not to have spreads. I want to forget that spreads are a thing. Can we? I'm just here never... to remind you <laughs> that this is something that's happening. Well, while you were gone, now. I do want to reassure you that Kelly talked about Bigolus Dickolus in your absence, just to keep that terminology alive and well on this podcast too. Yeah, 
anyway, I'm going to move on from that. Some follow-up from what you did last week. What do you want to hit here? I have, I have to admit yeah. I haven't listened, but what so, do you want to make sure people know about? A couple weeks ago when Kelly Jensen was here with me, one of the stories we talked about was a New York Times piece about how big the Book of Hove exhibit about Jay-Z's life and right. work was at the Brooklyn Library. And the Times piece was really shouting out, like, there are these 13 sort of gotta catch them all limited edition library cards. This has led to, I think it said, like 11,000 new accounts being created. This is a huge success. The library is doing this great thing. And I got a really thoughtful email from a listener named Jen, who I think provided like the exact kind of yes and context Mm. that I most appreciate, which is like, yes, this is a great, interesting thing. It was a super thoughtful, detailed email. Thank you for your trust in that, Jen. Um, But she was saying, Yes, this is interesting. And also, there are some real downsides to having an event like this and hype like this at a library. And those can mostly be summed up in it takes space away from other resources that regular library patrons need. It takes time away that the librarians could be spending helping patrons. And there were some complaints from regular library Mm. patrons that the Book of Hove um, was doing them a disservice. Um, In her email to me, Jen sent a link to a story from a website called Hellgate, which covers New York-related news um, that asks, is the Book of Hove really for anyone but Jay-Z? So we can provide that in the show notes here for additional context. And Jen even went like one further and said, you know, like, I think one of the reasons that the New York Public Library has done this is that Mayor Eric Adams had threatened to cut like many millions of dollars from public library funding. And he is a hip hop fan who understands the way Jen phrased it was hip hop as social currency, as capital. So this was really smart on the Brooklyn Public Library's part to plan this event that would go so big and show the mayor that, hey, the library is relevant. It's doing a big thing. You shouldn't cut our funding. And so like really libraries are trying to balance all of these things at the same time, serving their regular Mm. patrons, staying relevant with local politicians so they can maintain their funding. And that's it's too many things to balance. Um, But I really appreciated having that picture more fully fleshed out than just like, yay, look, this is cool and interesting, which is certainly the angle of the New York Times piece. And also the response that I had to it of like, this is awesome. It's doing growth things for the library, Um, more visibility for the library, more of the time, more people convinced that the library is cool more of the time. That's great. Um, And so I just wanted to share that with our listeners. Again, we'll put the link in the show notes, but also a thank you to Jen and an invitation for folks anytime you have additional context that we could and should know about and um, we do love to hear about it so thank you mm. okay we got the first salvo in the end of year awards kirk is first out of the gate with with its list of finalists um really i mean you want to talk about best of the year creep how about awards mm-hmm. creep you yeah. know that's that's the galaxy brain here. That's the real story, is awards group. Anyway, <laughs> worth looking at because we find this interesting, and I think you and I have been tracking as closely as ever the relative cultural imprint and critical and you know sales imprint of books, especially in the kind of books that would win the Kirkus Prize. Ten nonfiction, ten fiction. I'd say for us a fairly good showing on books we've talked about or have read, especially the ones that have been out. Um, you can you can vouch for Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. You spoke well about that. I have not read that yet. I will eventually. We have both gushed over the Heaven and Earth grocery store. 
We are both eagerly anticipating Jasmine's word, Let Us Descend, and How to Say Babylon by Safia Sinclair, which you will hear us gush about, being excited about in a different context if you listen to First Edition. Um, I Can Vouch for Our Migrant Souls by Hector Tobar. Um, And then you, you who hate Paul Murray, you badmouth Paul Murray... Do you well, have, I have anything an update to, about this? Do you have anything to say for yourself? Or that <laughs> yeah, the bee sting I, here I read the bee sting while you were on you vacation, did? and it is effing phenomenal. I heard it's amazing. <laughs> yes, I got FOMO where I had this galley. It's not even out sting. yet. How can you have FOMO when it's not well, out yet? Look I had the you. galley. I had the Coastal galley of the elite. bee sting, oh, okay. and I was looking at it, and okay. I was also like, put. I went to put a, another book on the bookshelf in my living room, and I saw Skippy dies, and I was like, mm. "Am I really gonna not read yeah. a new Paul Murray? I should at least try." It's like mm. I love Skippy dies. I did finish the second novel that he wrote that I now cannot remember the title of that had Tough to look. do with like Tough look for that novel. like the vagaries of an Irish banking crisis. Yikes. Um, this is so, it is so good mm. and like every one of the 650 something pages was worth it wow um yeah i i might i can talk about it more in front list foyer <laughs> in a little bit but that's my big news flash from you went on okay. vacation okay. I, I went Fair. rogue and read paul murray and now my money's on paul murray for this kirkus prize yeah i was reading a piece was it the new yorker somewhere saying you know this is the the leader in the clubhouse for the booker prize which is a bigger fish even than the kirkus prize so that's interesting um some books we've seen and talked about i will not be reading how not to kill yourself by clancy martin which is about his struggles with suicide and the, the topic of suicide writ large, though I've heard it's excellent. Um, yeah, there's some other things there. Go check it out. I, I guess for me, the first thing, especially coming off knockout rounds and fall draft stuff that we've done, notable not to see either the Big Z or or uh, Groff here. Yeah, and they're both published in the window um, yeah. for the Kirkus Prize, yeah. the eligibility window. It is interesting, especially yeah, not to see Zadie or Lauren Groff. Hmm. You know what the hipster pick, I think, is for the year? It's the Kelly Link, White Cat, Black Dog. I see people talking about this. I always yeah. walk by it, and I, I like her. Again, like short her stories is a little tough, but that one has been bubbling around, and I may get to that one um, eventually there. So go check all of those things out. Let's do one more sponsor break, and I'm going to tell you about how the British, British book industry is, is wrong, Can't and wait. I am right about things. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. 
Um, would you like to hear a couple of meta notes about traveling to the UK with my family before I get to the book specific one? Yeah, I mean, especially since we're going to go on the angle of American visits the UK and determines they do it wrong. Well, I'm joking. Most of the, most of the differences, I'm like, yeah, this is right, to be honest with you. Um, notably among them, we got to stop tipping. We just We just have to stop doing this. In the U.S., <laughs> so this is, we need it's to, so much you know, better not to tip. Pay more people a living wage, so tipping just, becomes yeah. Less just necessary. charge me more yeah. for my terrible English breakfast, mm-hmm. and the tipping is included in it. It's, I had the it's same so much better. In Spain. It's so much easier. It's so much easier. I also got onto the. Um, maybe I'm going to sound like I just figured out how to program my VCR. I don't know, <laughs> but using my phone as the contactless payment where I could choose oh, the credit yeah. card I wanted to use. The tap to pay. It's magical. Tap to pay. And it's more, it's more available here in the last week. I've been like seeing where I could use it. It's more available here. I didn't realize that anyway, using my phone, not having to get out my credit card, even to tap to pay with their credit card. It's great. Also that they bring the credit card machine to you at the restaurant. Yes. I haven't been mm-hmm. overseas in 20 years. So forgive me if everyone knows this. I've just forgotten. <laughs> That's awesome. Just do it right it there. We're done. We don't have to do the thing where they bring the bill and then I leave the, and they have to wait enough time for me to put the card down and then they bring they take the card away, they bring it back. Why are we doing this? We don't have to do this. Another thing. And <laughs> I don't know I don't know again, the last time I was in the UK, I was coming, it was god, 20 years ago now. And I hadn't even lived in New York at that time. So I was coming from Kansas. And London seemed like everything was made of gold. That's how expensive it felt mm, at that time. Mm-hmm. But this time, because I had been in New York, in Portland's, no, f- frankly, from a dining point of view, I feel like Portland's cheaper than London. I'm not kidding about this, and I haven't tallied up my credit card bills because I, you know, I have I have you know things I'd like to do without passing out for the next 72 hours. <laughs> oh, do you mean London's cheaper than Portland? Yeah, for the food, like oh, okay. the dining. Yeah. And we didn't do a lot of we didn't do high end dining, and there's more really high end dining in London than Portland. But the That's kind true. of places I'd go with my family, I was like. Especially when you don't, when you don't, when you take into account no tipping, it felt very, very reasonable. Again, strong dollar, and I was—I've been coming from—I'm coming from a coastal, you know, blue city rather than my small Kansas hometown, which was like two notches up. But it felt very, very reasonable. And London's a major city. I mean, I don't have to tell you this. Like, it's—it's it's a serious city, and I, I didn't find myself often being like ah ooh e. Mm-hmm. And in fact, and the other, the last thing before I should use that one because it's a good transition. The books are cheaper. Oh, they just are. A paperback. They had a paperback sitting out of tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow. That's ten pounds, which okay. with the current conversion rate, that's twelve bucks, twelve and a half bucks. Interesting. You cannot get a new paper. You can't get a trade paperback in this United you States of America for twelve and a half dollars. Definitely can't. You're pushing twenty bucks for a lot of them. Yeah, and the hardcover is like twenty four dollars. Not pounds. I did the conversion, and right now the dollar's strong, so you know your mileage may vary. But I was like, it's cheap. The books were cheap. These were. It's amazing. The last thing is, if you have a food allergy, they're going to find out. They ask you all the time, "Do you have a food allergy?" Mm. If we're sitting down to the breakfast rotate at our budget hotel, it's like, does anyone have a food allergy? It's like, God, no. Jeez, they're very worried about food allergies. God bless them. Um, but every every single food establishment, like even going to, to to like a pret, it's like, do you have any food allergies? Like. Well, I'm buying a, a uh, I'm buying a hoagie with cheese and meat and bread on it. I hope I don't have a gluten allergies. It's like blindly hoping that this random sandwich is cool for me, even though Taking it's the size a of a football. Um, so there's that. Uh, let's see what. Yeah, that those those are the things that really struck me. And, you know, trains are great. 
What else are you going to say? Trains I knew, are great. I, Michelle and I both have a love affair with European, well, all train systems, but the Europeans do it as well as anyone's. And we hope the kids loved it. We took a five-hour train from London to Glasgow, um, and we sprung for the we sprung for the first-class family, um, mm-hmm. where it's four of us around a table. Would you like to guess how much that one-way train ticket was? Five-and-a-half-hour train ride, first-class Four people, two kids, two adults. Would you like to guess how much it was? Seventy-five dollars. Yeah, it was one hundred and fifty-three dollars. Okay, still very reasonable. Very, for that very reasonable. Very yeah. reasonable. We did. I've taken cabs from Newark <laughs> to Times Square that were less exp- <laughs> that were more expensive than that. Yeah, that's, that's a miserable experience. Also, oh, yeah, also, um, and this was delightful. Yeah, I had that experience in Switzerland where I was like, this is the most cliche thing that a tourist yeah. could possibly say, but like, wow, the Swiss rail system. Yeah. No, it's great. And the kids had a great time. Uh, the other thing I'll say about being in London, central London for, for eight days, it was jammed. It was oh, yeah. so in the middle full of, of people. Summer. The middle of summer, like, you know, the, the AAA attractions were jammed. Though we went to some secondary things, like the British Library wasn't that bad. The Imperial War Museum wasn't that bad. But if you're trying to see the Rosetta Zone, forget about it. Like, you mm. know, go look at a rock outside and say, you know, I bet there were hieroglyphs <laughs> on that one. Uh, are the museums... Place. Still doing the COVID thing where you need to like make a reservation to enter at a particular time. Yeah. Well, the British Museum and the Tower of London and Westminster Abbey, and I think those are the only three. And those are, those are, but like the uh, Victorian Albert wasn't. Okay. But the Natural History Museum was. So it's really only the top, top tier stuff. Um, But if you get outside of that a little bit, and then if you go look at not the top tier attractions at any museum, you know, even the British Museum. Um, this can be fine, but it was jam. Scotland was delightful. I can see why Tolkien was like, I need to write a book that has the Shire in it just so I can describe England. The countryside's amazing. Um, downtown Edinburgh, around the, go Princess mm-hmm. Street is the park right in the middle. Go Rock Royal Mile up to Edinburgh Castle. But the whole thing, it feels like you're in Fairtale. We went up to the University of Glasgow, which looks like, and we don't talk about this person, but I'll just say it here. It's the most Hogwartsian MFN place I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Sounds charming. And so that was great. Lovely. So there's the the top notes. We had a great time. Bookstores. So I already hit the yeah. one. Books are cheap. Okay. The second one cheap. is they re again. I went to a couple of foils. I went to Daunt Books. James Daunt, where he made his bones. That's where he started sort of the invasion of um, Anglophone book retailing. I went to that location. I went into a, a couple of bookshop w, by W H Smith, which are bookshops and train stations, mm-hmm. little ones. And I still don't know how to say Waterstones. Waterstones, I don't care. I didn't ask anybody. Well, you know what I'm talking about. And I went to several of those in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow and then in London. Um, and then a place called South Ken- Kensington Books and a couple other local ones. There, uh, At least amongst the bookshops I went to, it feels like a very, very – and I went to a, two foils. A very similar experience in all of them. Okay. And and maybe that's just because I'm coming from the Americanness, so I see like the Britishness and if you have a better if you have a better attention to the micro details and differentiations among the British bookstores then you would know differently than I, which I assume to be the case. But a couple things I noticed. Paperbacks everywhere. And there's just mm. it just feels like the the stores have more books in them. Not mm. more titles, just more copies. More copies? Like they'll have a, they'll have a front table and the things will be 14 feet uh, 14 feet, 14 copies high with oh, no wow. space between them, just like jammed up like Costco style, but of paperbacks huh. in independent bookstores. And then, you know, in Daunt Books, I guess it's, I think it's, it's, it's kind of the, um, um, the archetype for a lot of these. Face out, face out, face out, face yep, out, yep, face yep. out, face out, face Like you go, you have to go way back and it's a charming bookstore. It's got wooden banisters and a second floor and an atrium. 
it feels jammed, it feels small, it kind of feels like you want, um, there's sort of like a, a dustily um, bibliophilic womb-like experience to most of these bookstores that, that people get into. But hardbacks are definitely deprecated. Like the new release hardbacks, like they're over to the side and feel small. I, I, so I don't know. I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if the paperback hardback split, which we know is a big deal in America, is even greater um, mm. in the UK, just about how they're presented. The other thing, too, is, again, now we're in central London and we're in central European cities and real estate is at a real premium, so I totally get this. But if you don't want one of those, if you don't want a book that's not face out in the main floor, have fun. Like go good, out. You mean good luck you, finding you, it? Yeah, it's you're, it's not going to be there. There's not enough room. Oh, There's not I a, see. like I see. the thing that we grew up with that enamored us of the book, the Barnes and mm-hmm. Nobles of like nineteen three story Barnes and Noble. Yes, yeah. it was de facto the Library of Alexandria for books mm-hmm. in print, and you could go. You didn't go. You know, you got your latte and you saw the you know you saw the things in the front, and then you wanted to go get a Tom Robbins novel, or you wanted to go get a paperback of Kurt Vonnegut or whatever. They no one only have that one. They'd have all of Vonnegut, and they'd have all the Stephen King. Yep. And that's just not that's just not the case there. They really are focused on like the front of store book buying experience, and some of those are like what's new, you know, what's selling. Um, I went into um, I think it was a Foils, yeah, right down right down by the Globe. And you walk in, and there's two tables. One is stacked with tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and the other one stacked with lessons in chemistry. Huh. Right there. And I like, wonder if... They just think people are there for those. Are I UK guess. publishers and booksellers like all tied up in knots over discoverability the way we are here? Because that kind of solves the problem. Like We're going to have 15 titles, and you're going to take one of them. Here you go. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think it's probably, you know, it's that circular thing we talk about is like people have heard about these books, so maybe they're not in the bookstore for that book. But if you come into the bookstore and you've heard of that book, they want to make sure mm-hmm. you see that you can buy, oh, I heard about this. Any right. book you could say that about, they want to make sure you see, and there's a giant stack of them. Which I think Smart. is, from a moving units point of view, you know, Josh Cook on the show talked about stack them high, let them fly. This is stack yeah. them high, get it in their eye and let them fly. Like, make sure they see it. Make sure it's a book yeah. they've heard about. And like, you know, there's Colleen Hoover table and there's other tables there. There were, I was like, okay, am I going to have heard of all the books? Because I walk into Powell's now, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. on, a, on a new release Tuesday, and I look at the new book section. I've heard, like 90% of the things are going to put out there. That's fine. That's my job. That's no big deal. I was like, it's going to be similar. There's not as much crossover as you would think. There, there's books like, I haven't heard of this author. I have no idea. And it's like got a, you know, Irish Times, Gold Star, you know, favorite bestseller thing on it. Like, I have no idea what this thing is. There's this book I, I saw. It's called Windswept. It's about a woman moving to the Scottish Highlands. I'm like, yes, I'm in the place. I'm going to get this on audio. I'm going to listen to it on the train. Perfect. And I'm going to ascend into the heavens. And it's not, you can't get it in the States. Not, it's not, oh. no, no audible, it's not just a no audiobook. I can't even get a print copy of it. Um, Did you so buy it in print there and read it on the no, train? I left like a fool. Jeff! I, I'm spoiled. What do you mean to say? I assumed I could get the damn thing. So anyway, um, there's that. Let's see what else. I'm, gonna I'm say so disappointed. I, I'm going to do a piece, I don't know, for first edition or maybe the deep dive. I took a bunch of pictures of UK covers of books that mm. um, I know what the US version looks like. I, I'm not a graphic designer by trade. I will say, I think in general, I slightly prefer American sensibility to book covers. I don't know why. But I need to think about what it is. And maybe it's just familiarity. I know a lot of people, especially when the book depository went out of business, like, where am I going to get my UK book covers? Mm. And I don't know if that's sort of a stamp collector's thing where it's different. You know, I'm going to get the variant number one because I'm hoarding it. That's fine. Have fun. I don't care what you do. But is it actual preference or is it scarcity? Yeah. But it is, I feel like on the whole, it is different. It it is different. And I also told you... um, we we're talking about Zadie Smith. They had, and it's it's coming out. I think 
this next week there. No, maybe it's a, maybe a global drop date. Anyway, they had handouts about Zadie Smith's The Fraud that you unfolded them. That's it was wild. like a big four-color, double-sided, glossy. On one side, it turns into like a poster. Well, probably a half-poster-side thing of just The Fraud. On the back is a bunch of stuff about Zadie Smith, her other books, her autobiography, why Zadie Smith is cool. I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that in any in any place. I'd never seen anything like that. Yeah, I've never seen anything like that. Definitely not for a big historical literary novel. Yeah, you know, if you're if they're doing like tear out takeaway promotional materials at a bookstore in the U.S., it's for like a big commercial hit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last thing, and this is not this is kind of funny. So the foils I was visiting, which is by the Shakespeare's Globe Theater, is in this. It's kind of in this entertainment complex. I don't remember the name of it. But it's like a cultural event space. And that night, there was an author event that Foyles was hosting upstairs. Would you like to guess who the author was? Oh, God. No, I don't want to guess. Was it Zadie Colson Smith? Colson Whitehead. Colson oh. Whitehead. <laughs> Perfect. We almost came back. I was like, oh, we're kind of far away. <laughs> you got to drag. Your kids are a little Dragging young kids. Yeah, a little young. <laughs> it's like, okay. But that was funny. So that's my report. From um, the British bookstores. Well, sounds like a good time. I, ever since you told me about uh, Scotland and getting to see the Highland cows, my Instagram has been serving me pictures. Is of that them, right? So, like, the robots definitely know something wow. is happening. Good Lord. We made a special <laughs> I don't trip hate to see it. the Highland cows. Yeah, The Highland cow is a special thing. That would have been yeah. the highlight of my trip, too. I'd be like, screw this bookstore. Get it's me the to most Muppet-looking-headed character I've ever seen. <laughs> Love it. The bangs. I'm sorry, fringe for those of you in the UK <laughs> that come over its eyes. I don't know how they see. <laughs> anyway, my, I, I love this uh, for you. This is an important update. The um, Highland cows are now my daughter's second favorite animal. Really climb the charts. <laughs> sea otters were looking over their shoulders. They're like, "Whoa, are we coming? Are we going? Are we are we getting taken down today? Not quite. Sea otters are still safe." But I just the Highland cows went like, from unranked number two in the world yeah, in the course the, of about uh, 48 hours. Just the multitude of flavors that are captured just by the that sea otters are number one and Highland <laughs> cows are number two. She likes Rowan's a thick coat. She likes a thick yeah, coat. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. You well, want to do summer, any reading catch up? You Okay, talk about sure. this little book called The Beasting, which you definitely oh. didn't slag and say you were never reading Paul Murray again when I first Yeah, I mean, I was like, I love Paul. I think my actual statement was I love Paul Murray, but I need him to do like 350 pages instead of 600. Mm. But you know what? He's uh, he's just earned it back. Um, it's, I mean, a huge novel. It is set in Ireland, like in a small village about a family that it, it's rich people problems. And I was like, oh, I am going to like this. It's yep. this like wealthy family that owns a like car dealership and car repair place. And there, a recession has hit business is not going well and maybe there is something else that's happening with the family um, and you kind of make your way into the story through their teenage daughter and her best friend who are finishing high school and getting ready they hope to go off to trinity college in dublin and then he starts unwinding in each section of the book we're moving like a little bit farther into the past how the family ended up in this situation and first we're with the teenage daughter and then we're with the son and then we're with the mother and mm. he starts like playing with form there where I was reading a digital galley because like who's going to hold a 600 page book to read it yeah. and 
you get to the section from the mother's perspective and it's like it felt stream of consciousnessy and there's very little punctuation and so then I went and hunted down a hardback copy so I could be like is this how it really is mm. or is this just what's happening in the digital version or in the galley that is how it really is every time you're in the mother's perspective then we're in the dad's perspective like a little bit farther into the past and these are big chunks of book that we spend with each of these people it's not like a carousel um quick novel moving through each of their perspectives is like this and then this and it's different parts of their lives that we're getting from each of them and as we get closer to the end of the book the sections get shorter and start moving faster and everything is like coming together and picking up momentum and it's Mm. just really good it's just really really good um there is a little there's like some addiction stuff that happens there is a rape scene that was surprising Mm. so trigger warnings for that and there's some homophobia on the page um as like what is happening in one of the characters lives in ireland several decades ago um so just like some warnings for that i think paul murray does a great job of sort of capturing all of this and giving us these people's lives but like if this thing does not become an adaptation that can take the place of succession in my heart for like let's I, unwind I, a family story. I'm afraid the beasting is a little late at the streaming party, Rebecca. I'm kind of worried and about this kind of. I thing know, now. and it's gonna need a different title for sure if they're gonna like make people pay attention you think to so? it. Okay. Yeah, the beasting. I mean, it refers to an incident that happens in the story, but you have to get a couple hundred pages in to get that answer. Um, mm. It's great. It's great, and then. It's, you know, the end of the season. So I'm doing my, like, what did I miss this summer cleanup? And I picked up The Country of the Blind by Andrew Leland. Oh, what'd you think? Oh, man, it's so good. It's very good. It's so good. good. It's so good. And, like, the perfect blend of memoir and nonfiction and, like, all of the different research that he does into, like, how we understand blindness and the technologies that people have built up to provide support and accommodation for blind people. It feel, I was the hey, did you know machine for the week that I was reading Sweet. that book. And Bob was like, why are all the facts about blindness this week? It's like, oh, I'm reading a book. Yeah, reading a book. Um, yeah, Come it was on, great. Bob. You're no rookie. Know. You should know. I know. She's, like, she's reading a book about blindness again. <laughs> and I think I did tell him, and it just like went in one ear yeah. and out the other. And I was like, yes, there's a reason that all the mm. facts are about blindness. It was so good. I'm really glad that you spoke about it so highly because it, it did nudge me. Did you get any reading done on uh, your trip? You know, I did a little bit before, and I think I got a little mop up to do. So I mentioned the Great Wide Great White Bard by um, mm. uh, Farrah Kareem Cooper. I read that, of course, because I do my homework when I do interviews. Um, very, very good. I finished yesterday the fraud, but I'm going to hold off on talking okay. about it because we're going to talk okay. about it together. Yes. Um, and I did that by Zadie Smith. Uh, I did, I did some audio for the plane. I wanted to get mm. ready. So I read this book called Once Upon a um, Tome by Oliver. Uh, let's see. Oh, what's his Once name? Darkshire. Once Upon a Tome. <laughs> I got to look it up. I have it written down on my. Yeah. Oliver Darkshire, The Misadventures of a Rare Bookseller. He, Interesting. Kind of stumbled into a career as an antiquarian bookseller at Sutherland's Books in London, which is a venerable bookstore. Rebecca, I need I need to tell you something. I've read two <laughs> books this year with a bookish pun on the once upon a <laughs> two of them. I've read two and of them. Plenty, this year. plenty other titles with puns in them, but we've got two once upon. I've got two once. I've got once upon a prime by Sarah Hart. <laughs> And Once Upon a Tome. Once Upon a Prime is just A-plus work. 
Once Upon a Tome's not bad either, especially because it's about books, but Once Upon a Brime, in my mind, got there first. But I'm a little concerned that I've read two books (laughs) with a pun on this on the same What is the most boring history of X in 10 things you've read this year that you ended up loving? Um, I'm listening right now. It's not a history. It's not a micro history, but it is. It's it's also a pun. Empire (laughs) of the Sum by Keith Houston about the calculator. What percentage of your reading involves a punny title? This is, is what I'm worried about. This is I what I'm want worried to about. Know, and I'm scared of the answer. It's like once you have multiple voices in your head, you got to oh, start Jeff. wondering which of these should I be listening to? I, I'm very concerned. But it was really great on audio. Um, talks about, you know, it's it's like the, just the right amount of like warmly, curmudgeonly that you want from someone working in an antiquarian <laughs> bookstore. It was really great. Um, I also, and I don't know. I can't really tell you why I eventually picked this up. I also I was reading this while I was jet lagged in London while my kids were still sleeping at three in the morning on my Kindle. I read Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. Have you heard of this book at all? No. Have you seen anything about this? Uh uh. It's it's sort of a quiet hit. Um and there's a sequel coming out in November, and the pitch is um, you know, like these high fantasy stories where there's a group of like misfit adventurers all together and they take down the evil thing and then that's the sure. end of the story. This says, well, what if we picked up our story at the end of that? Like what mm. happens after? And so the main character is this warrior orc, right? Who you know, <laughs> wields a broadsword and she then wants to open up a coffee shop in the local fantasy <laughs> village. And it's about her opening up a coffee shop. Oh, I love fantasy. that. It I was, will watch that show. It's called Legends of Lattes, colon, a novel of high fantasy and low stakes by Travis Baldry. <laughs> and I'd seen some people talking about it. I'd seen it put out uh, at Powell's. Really funny. And I'd heard just enough about it to, for it to catch my attention. I was like, this sounds cozy and comforting. And God damn it, it is cozy and comforting. <laughs> That's just delightful. I'm so yeah. glad that that exists in the world. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know if anyone out there has read this, but... Uh, it's kind of a sleeper, a sleeper little fantasy that's, hit. So it sounds anyway. like a good. That's a good jet lag pick. Yeah. Um, I was. It was over to too decide... fast. I burned through it. It was over. Oh. My, I could have used a number of couple, six hours okay. of jet lag reading over the spread over a few days. Over too fast is high praise too. Yeah. Um, I was looking for what am I going to take in paperback on this trip with oh, me because there's going yeah. to be beach time and I don't want to take my iPad on the beach. Can you? And or, I think okay, I'm going to. Go I'm going to make my first foray into the Bardugo verse. And oh, read which one? Six of, gonna, crows, six of Crows, because I like a heist. I like a heist oh, situation. You're going to like, uh, well, I'll be curious to see. Can yeah. I suggest something else instead? Sure. And maybe this is, we're, gonna, we're getting ready to record our summer draft look back, <laughs> and I'm going to spoil a little bit, because there's one book I wish I could take, because mm. I think it became the book of the summer, and it's The Guest by Emma Klein. If you're on oh, I did read that while you oh, were on you vacation, What did you think of yeah. that? It was good. It was it's fun. Good, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Fun. I've been like very amused following along with the Vulture Book Club emails about it, and everyone who, as you were saying, like does not like they lost their minds over an ambiguous ending. They, we, they really. You know what? If we ever need to take down the Western Hemisphere, just write a just, really big bestseller with an ambiguous with ending an ambiguous invade. Yeah, yeah. They'll go nuts. Um, yeah, it was fun. That was it was like a fun Saturday read. Yeah, I really okay. liked it. You already did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's. It's a fun Saturday read. That's the right. You can do it in one sitting, sit outside, have a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah like I was getting my hair done this morning. And my hairstylist is going to the beach next week, and she asked me what she should take with her, and I was like, oh, obviously, The Guest mm-hmm. by Emma Klein. Uh, obviously. That's, well, and I think that's, that's the one. a lot of people did that, because I think it became the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the hit of the summer. Yeah. 
um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's one. a pretty good reading wrap-up. By the time we talk again, I'm sure we'll have some other stuff to talk about. But until then, go to bookriot.com slash listen to get the notes and links to everything we talked about today, including first edition and the Patreon and the deep dive and all the other crap we make for you guys. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can also email us podcast at bookriot.com. And I think Northington's with me next week. She is. Yeah, Jen will be so. here with you. So we'll, we'll probably talk, we'll probably spend 30 minutes crying about Dune 2 being delayed, and then we'll get this a book news. I'm so sad for y'all for that. It's okay. It's a bummer. Let the writers and, and actors strike. I don't know if, I, I haven't really read that much about it. I don't know if this is like because of all the other stuff going on. Yeah, that's fine, they, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to get bent out of shape about it. I'd like yeah, to they just want the actors to be available to promote it, and they won't That makes be a ton of sense. Strike. So yeah, yeah it totally yeah, does, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about this, uh... Oh, uh, um, maybe Jen and I will also talk about how I will not watch The Changeling by Victor Laval because it's too scary. Um, it's, again, these things happen in any striking situation. I do feel bad for the people who, this is their first adaptation, mm-hmm. their first mm-hmm. acting work. Um, like Shea Serrano, his, his, his series Primo was catching a little bit fire, but and he was doing a good job promoting it. He, he used to write for The Ringer, and now he's doing his own thing. Yeah, he's His great. own sort of middle, small publishing company called Halfway Books. And he was so excited to do it, and he did. He was a good soldier, right? And he's not doing any of the promotion because that's how it is. But I was like, man, I feel like there should be like, you know, a rookie's exemption. Like if this is your first <laughs> thing, you should be able to. I don't know. I do feel bad. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, it's really tough. It's for not their fault. It's just it's, no. just it's it's bad timing. It's not good for anyone. But I feel like it's especially bad for the. Um, the changelings and the the Victor Lavals and the um, Shea Serranos and the people just yeah I'm in the world. like honestly a little bit surprised that Dune is the only thing we've seen get bumped Yet. because of that so far Yet. yeah 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 okay Rebecca thanks so much talk to you next time All right.